Que pasa, Mufasa. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. Today's guest is renowned cultivator and fungi business magnate, Chris Aaron, a.k.a. Ape King Kong. From the feedback that we've gotten from our testers and our labs, we have a very stable, a very accurate test. You will now be able to buy a test for under $25. Take the test at home, and within half an hour, you will have the results. Some might call him the bag king as well, and we'll get into that shortly. And today we're going to talk about the future of the psilocybin mushroom industry straight up. We are tapping into alkaloid profiles. We're talking about exotics, wood-loving fungi, and a particularly moving real-life anecdote of microdosing magic. All kinds of good stuff today. Thank you for joining us. We sincerely appreciate your time. Without further ado, let's get down to business. What's up, everybody? Welcome Chris Aaron, a.k.a. Ape King Kong in the house today. What's going on, Chris? Thanks for joining us on the Michaelpreneur podcast. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. <laughs> for sure. So let's set the stage with your professional background working with psilocybin mushrooms, because as we've discussed, it's sometimes hard to qualify people's achievements and profile when we're dealing with a largely underground gray market, black market, etc. as psilocybin mushrooms have traditionally been relegated to. But I understand that you've got a wealth of experience and knowledge working with mushrooms and mushroom genetics. So let's set the stage by talking about some of the various projects that you've been involved with over the course of your career as a pioneer in the mushroom industry. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we can start with my tenure. I started 26 years years ago with actives. We call them actives. And I started growing when I was in university. We were procuring spores from High Times magazines and trading with friends. And we were growing in, at the time, um, they were still air boxes and the technology's come a long way. But so I was growing in university and selling in university a long time ago. And then life sort of happens, family, there was, you know, sort of a break from that. And I sort of transitioned over to gourmet and medicinal mushrooms, which the, the three, I guess, I guess categories we would say would be active, gourmet and medicinal. So like the reishis and the lion's mane, et cetera. So I did that for quite a while, and then I got back into the active realm, I guess, about six years ago, as things started to pick up and popularity started to increase, and just my general interest. It's something I've been, you know, a hobby and obsessed with for, <laughs> for a long time. So um, as I got back into it, I started doing some consulting work. I've got a great network of mycologists and scientists and researchers all over the world that I work with. And um, we set up a, a mycology cultivation school, sort of a master class online. So we began teaching classes and courses. And over the past years, I have sort of developed my personal tech, which is I use exclusively grow bags for the actives. So I've used a lot of the technology and sort of the strategies that they've used in the gourmet market with the bags and adopted that for the active market. So I've come to be sort of synonymously known as, you know, the bag guy. And uh, I've had some pretty good luck with it. And my results are fairly, fairly good for, for, 
you know, what I do and the amount of effort that I, I put into it. You know, I've honed the skill down to a fairly fine, simple art after so many years. And I now sort of teach that methodology and I teach the bag life, bag tech sort of discipline as much as I can. Um, whereas historically, actives and psilocybin and psilocybin have been grown in bins and tubs and trays and tables and that kind of thing. So fast forward to today, I do a lot of work with genetics. I have, I specialize in genetics and I do a lot of isolation work with genetics. I try to optimize strains and isolate for commercial use as my primary. I'm trying to develop for my clients strong, potent, fast, growing commercially viable strains so my goal is to optimize you know their output potential so that's sort of been what i've been working on and i've accumulated i want to say one of the largest gene banks uh, on the planet i've you know worked with some pretty big partners and we've now probably got in our collection on our bank 500 different strains from spores to swabs to prints to live active cultures, um, gourmet cultures, wood lovers, dung lovers, lots of good stuff. So with that, I'm able to really hone in and find out which and who's who in the zoo are performers, top level for, for performers. And I've been working with labs over the years and now I'm working with some universities and we're getting some fantastic testing done and the results are coming back on some of the stuff that we're doing and we've never seen results like it before so it's exciting so the genetics are a big part of what i'm doing right now i am the chief mycologist at cube biotech in montreal canada they are i think the only lab or the only natural entheogen company in quebec and i like that and um, we've got some exciting things coming. They've actually partnered with some universities, and I am blessed to have the opportunity to work with some very esteemed mycologists and doctors and researchers at some wonderful universities right now. University of Montreal, I'm working with their fungarium, and we've got some exciting stuff coming. So that's sort of in a nutshell. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much for the broad strokes background. That helps set the stage. And you mentioned a number of things right there that I want to unpack further, but let's start with mushroom grow bags. I've noticed a lot of cultivators, including several who have been on the podcast, who not only use bags instead of jars, of course, but who actually fruit their mushrooms in the bags as well, rather than using a monotub or whatever, like you just mentioned. And there seems to be room for improvement in the design and optimization of some of these mushroom grow bags. I've had Garrett from Unicorn Bags on the podcast. Shout out, Garrett, probably making the best bags on the planet. I'd love for you to tell us what are the advantages of fruiting directly in a bag and what are some of the limitations or opportunities to optimizing bag tech and redesigning bags moving forward? Right. That sort of hits uh, a big topic with me right now. I meant shout out to Unicorn Bags. Uh, you guys are top stop for me. Um, I have been using the bags largely for quite simply, I mean, for selfish, lazy, started no other excuse uh 
I didn't like cleaning. I didn't like cleaning the bins. I didn't like drilling the bins. I didn't like making the holes and taping them up each time. So, and when you start to multiply that, you know, for larger operations out of your basement, then we're talking commercial operations. When you're talking, you know, 500 bins or, you know, totes or thousands or 5,000, that becomes a monstrous amount of labor on the front end, both for designing and engineering and drilling and, you know, filing, but also each time, each month for cleaning. So, um, purely for that need and also, you know, sort of my history, I could see the similarities with gourmet usage. I mean, the world over uses bags for gourmet. However, for gourmet, you're using the bags in an ex vitro fruiting situation. So in other words, you colonize a brick of substrate inside the bag. And once that is colonized with mycelium, we slice the bag open. Everybody's seen it. And the mushrooms pop outside of the bag. They, they grow out the side of the bag, you know, either like a shelf or they cascade like lion's mane and hang down vertically. Uh, and it's, you know, sort of the typical ubiquitous grow bag. What we're doing with actives is we're growing them in vitro. So everything is grown inside the bag. The bag is sealed completely. It's a complete isolated, sealed environment inside. We have um, micron filter patches to make sure everything is clean. Uh, the bags are sealed. There's proper airflow. Um, however, they're not perfect. What I do use is exclusively unicorn bag setup. <laughs> uh, and I'm working with them right now to sort of engineer some new bag options for psilocybin and active um, exclusive. Uh, we don't have that right now. So what we've been doing is we've been sort of um, modifying these grow bags, these gourmet bags, um, which they've been, I've been able to modify them successfully and, you know, we can teach that, but um, they're just not specifically made for this. So we have a bunch of things that we're re-engineering and looking at different options with different filter patches, positions, vents, those types of things. So pretty excited about that. We're, um, we're hoping to have some tests done here in the next two months. Our trial tests are going to be, you know, pretty exciting. We've got a couple of testers going and we'll get the feedback to Unicorn and they'll sort of help us hone it down and hopefully we'll be able to bring a better bag to the active market, um, you know, a psilocybin grow bag. So that's sort of what, uh, what the hope is. And I think we'll get there. I mean, they're definitely, you know, a great company and they're working with me, you know, and uh, we want to see you know, some development there. So there's opportunity. And I think it'll be a game changer, quite frankly. Awesome. Looking forward to that. Well, I'll keep, I'll keep attuned to whatever you're doing there and uh, shout out Unicorn one more time. Woo! All right. So the legal framework, legal framework surrounding psilocybin mushrooms is changing quickly. And here in the States, the Biden administration announced just a few weeks ago that they expect regulators to approve psilocybin as a designated breakthrough therapy for PTSD and depression within the next two years pretty mainstream news. So that's obviously caused a lot more folks in the financial industry and kind of in the mainstream at large to become more bullish 
on psilocybin and to start looking into it more seriously. And that's shifting some of the way that, you know, the regulators and the, the legal landscape is quickly starting to change. So a Canadian company called Optimi Health released the first legally available natural therapeutic psilocybin product for approved patients. And to my knowledge, nothing like that has happened in the United States yet. So there's obviously a different situation regarding the legal and regulatory landscape around psilocybin in Canada as opposed to in the United States. So I'd love it if you as a Canadian micropreneur who's deeply invested in this emerging legal psilocybin industry, if you could walk us through some of the current conditions surrounding the legal psilocybin mushroom landscape in Canada and maybe juxtapose those against some of what's happening in the States. Canada is basically on a same line trajectory as we followed for legal cannabis. I was in the cannabis market and doing genetics and breeding in there. So I can see and I know, you know, the, the consultants that we're using that are working with Health Canada. We are, I believe, the first G8 country where we're federally uh, exempt and licensing and legal psilocybin usage for commercial, for research. So I don't think, I think we're the first again there. I think that's the biggest sort of juxtaposition. We we definitely have that favorable, I guess, two years ago, uh, the Canadian government, it might have been last year actually, uh, made exemption for, um, I believe, seven or eight uh, terminally ill patients. Um, so these are societies, you know, most vulnerable, you know. Uh, and when the government says that we are going to offer the ability to try and relieve some of that um, duress from that particular demographic, then it's only logically a matter of time where we see, you know, sort of the framework opens up and people become more and more interested in the market. And my main goal with this is awareness and research for mental disorder. I myself struggle with PTSD and anxiety. I've had, you know, several fairly traumatic events in my life. So I speak to it from a personal level and I struggle with those too. So um, getting any sort of awareness and, you know, furthering the research and legality framework is sort of my MO um, any day. And I'm working, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be working with one of the few um, licensed and legal biotech companies in Canada. There aren't a lot. There are a few, but we see now that the application process is becoming more and more, you know, sort of easier. It's, you know, following the same lines of the cannabis framework. We're seeing a lot more people, you know, coming into the market. But at this point, we're still, you know, the only I guess from a financial side of things, you know, the only bankable country really where we're getting, you know, where we've got that. I mean, you know, it's still, I, I see it's a tenuous situation in some states where, you know, if you're trying to attract big money and you have, you know, a state that is, you know, pushing for exemption, but federally we've still got, you know, call it the dark specter looming over above because we've been in this gray black market forever. So it's only just now scratching the surface of, you know, even being able to discuss legality. So, uh, you know, it's still, it's, uh, you know, if we're talking about, you know, real money, Wall Street money, uh, hopefully that will, 
you know, become a little bit more fluid and people will be more, a little bit more trusting and great news if Biden, you know, does want to loosen the reins a little bit. We need more of that. We need more research being done. We need, you know, sort of better better coverage. Uh, and then that'll attract more solid, you know, financial backing, which, you know, it's only going to help the business. I think we've also learned a heck of a lot from the mistakes we made in the cannabis world. Uh, you know, here in Canada, it's been, you know, sort of a bit of a deplorable rollout. And, you know, it really was a botched sort of system. They're sort of playing catch up now. Things are sort of normalizing. But we don't want to see that same thing happen with psilocybin. And, you know, arguably, we have a tremendous amount of support for psilocybin from the actual medical community, from the doctors. They see we're getting true empirical bona fide results for curing mental illness and curing addiction and, and uh, opiate addiction and alcoholism and smoke cessation. You know, this isn't some anecdotal research. I had a Canadian biotech co-founder on and he mentioned that with some of these studies, like with smoking cessation, it becomes more bulletproof because it's a binary result. It's not like this, oh, I think it helped me. It's like, did you either quit smoking or did you not quit smoking? So I think that's part of what's driving some of those particular clinical trials. Just wanted to make a note of it since you mentioned that. Just mentioning that one, I see the, the results that we're seeing on that particular note on smoke cessation is we're seeing an average of at least two years longer of that cessation. So whereas other therapies, other methodologies, other uh, strategies for quitting smoking the average sometimes is one year to even less before someone turns around and they pick it back up again. So this, the results, you know, empirically are greater than most of the other sort of methods out there. Let's tap in about psilocybin potency testing, because that is a huge emerging theme right now. And I've been hearing more and more companies who are getting into it and developing protocols. I've been hearing about psilocybin potency home test kits, which I saw a prototype of one at a conference last year. And I believe it's something that you are invested in as well. So obviously that would be a game changer for the industry when potency testing becomes reliable and widespread and kind of a standard rather than the exception. So uh, would love to hear about some of your experiences working with psilocybin potency testing. And do you have anything to share with us on the project of psilocybin potency home test kits? I've been testing my results or my product for about two years now. Historically, only reliable way of testing we've had have been lab testing and using uh, HPLC. And that's, you know, that's fine. It's great. It's, you know, it, it's sort of the gold standard to some degree, but it's also expensive and it's laborious and trying to get a sample to a lab for a lot of people is not an easy endeavor, being that it's illegal in a lot of places to, first of all, hold, carry, or possess uh, the drug, the psilocybin. So sending it, people are having to be creative and use proxies and use a proxy and jump on and have somebody else send it for them and then the accuracy of the results and the time. So uh, it's a bit maddening at times and you're looking at probably $150 minimum per test, you know, at a 
a week to two week or longer turnaround depending on the lab. If you can find a lab that's willing to do it for you, uh, there's not a lot out there that, you know, have accurate protocols and the SOPs written and trustworthy. Uh, there's a few <laughs> cohorts out there that are sort of, I won't get into that. Anyways, um, so about four years ago, uh, a company out of Germany started a home test kit uh, and it's sort of been, it, it, it came to the, you know, North American market a little while ago and it's, it's sort of the only thing that we've had, but it's been received with mixed results. It's the, the, the protocol to do the test, the home test kit. And by the time you actually get it, it's probably about a month wait coming from Germany and the shipping is exorbitant, et cetera. So by the time you get it landed, and the, the accuracy of that one particular kit, and I'm just you know, saying this because there's absolutely nothing else on the market commercially available. We were just seeing over and over and over botched results, you know, failed results, inaccurate results. The results were just not bankable. And we were testing them. We had, you know, our researchers testing them and side-by-side -side analysis with HPLC testing. And it's by no fault of the, the company that put it out in Germany. It was just the, the procedure alone was so difficult. It was very easy for user error. And that's what we see was happening. So out of that alone, I got together with some real smart science people and we started doing some testing eight months ago. And we started doing exhaustive testing with different reagents and formulating our own formula for a quantitative psilocybin, psilocin, indole home test kit. So that became True Test. True Test has now gone through about six months of testing. We've had lab results back and forth. I personally think I've done more testing on psilocybin than anybody else on the planet at this point. <laughs> I do so much testing on my own stuff and it's for both my own personal needs, but it's to test the true test. So we've now put together this home test kit. It will be, um, it will be available for market. I'm hoping in the next two months, um, everything is done as far as marketing, packaging, testing. We've got one final round more of lab tests to do, and then we're printing our own instruction booklets. And it should be relatively accessible for most North American users, um, and we'll look at Europe after, but we're pretty excited about it. From the feedback that we've gotten from our testers and our labs, um, we have a very stable, a very accurate test. You will now be able to buy a test for under $25, take the test at home, and within half an hour, you will have the results. Now, the half an hour is mostly the prep, you know, grinding up the mushroom samples, you know, mixing it, blah, blah, blah. But the actual result is almost instantaneous. It, once you have the reaction and we set the color, the color sets within one minute and it stays and it holds and it doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't float. We don't have different scales of color that that throw people off. So we're very excited. We think we have something that, you know, nobody else has as far as the quality. We know there's another company in Israel that's uh, doing some home test kits, but not quite as accurate and stable as ours. And 
will probably be, you know, something a little bit closer to home for the domestic market. So that is coming soon. So stay tuned. (laughs) Along those lines of emerging trends and ways to stay ahead of the curve for those people intent on investing in the legal psilocybin mushroom industry and making it a bigger part of their lives, I've heard from a few different people who have identified wood-loving psilocybes as being an area of research that they feel is underserved and that they want to focus on, since research on cubensis is already pretty heavily saturated. There's obviously always room for more, but there's a lot more people focusing on cubensis than on wood-loving fungi. So I would love to hear from you. Do you think that this is an area worth researching and investing time and attention into? And why specifically do you think wood-loving fungi have commanded the attention of various people in the mushroom industry? Sure. We call the wood lovers or the dung lovers exotics, and I think they are the future. I mean, right now we are limited by the capabilities of our testing and we work with cubensis largely because it's the easiest for us to cultivate. I do know some very astute cultivators, masters of exotics, wood lovers, dung lovers. Uh, It's a much, much smaller yielding fruit. Uh, It's a more difficult, uh, advanced grow, but... Once we understand the alkaloid profiles and the enzymes of the constituents of cubensis, which we're only just starting to scratch the surface of understanding on, uh, we, we, we don't know everything that's in even our cubensis and some of the mutations that I'm growing, we, you know, we haven't even been able to understand some of the testing on. So once we start to understand even that, then we start to look at exotics and the wood lovers and the dung lovers. And they have a completely, I'm not going to say different, but an alkaloid profile that it's staggering the effects when people compare one to the other. I'll use the analogy of cannabis and the isolate versus full spectrum, full spec sort of comparison. When we look at the two, we know that the wood lovers have much higher alkaloid levels. We know that the potency levels of, you know, things like azurins and, and, and cyanescence are much, much, much higher than cubensis. So we're just starting to figure out the little that we know about cubensis once we sort of understand that a little more, because right now our testing is showing, you know, in some labs I can see we're getting testing back and we're getting spikes, you know, 13 or 14 spikes on our testing. And of course we have, you know, the usual suspects, which we know we can test for the psilocin, the psilocybin, the biocystin, and a few other ones. But there's a whole bunch of spikes that we don't know what they are. We don't know what they mean. Once we find that out, it might help us unlock the riddle of, you know, this full spectrum sort of idea that we have. And then we can start to look at much higher levels in the the exotics. Now, I don't know if, you know, the exotics will be, it, it, it's going to take us a little while to get to that level, I feel, just because there's very few people that can actually cultivate those, let alone, you know, make enough for it to be viable for extraction. We would probably have to look at in the future doing, you know, synthesis really for it to be anything, but just the canvas alone for us to understand what, you know, some of those mushrooms capabilities are. It's exciting. I definitely think that that's the future. I think, you know, 
we will be able to understand the exotics a little bit better once we understand the cubensis a little bit better. And, you know, we're still sort of struggling to even definitively understand if, uh, you know, when, for example, peak potency is when we're growing, when we're fruiting, we still don't know when the mushroom hits peak potency and when is the best time for us to harvest. Anecdotally, we have ideas, you know, and we can look at it from a humanistic point of view on what we think that the mushroom does. And when we think, and we, we currently, the, you know, the thinking is as the veil breaks on the cap of the mushroom, as the cap of the mushroom grows and it spreads out from concave, as it becomes more sort of linear and the veil underneath breaks, that's when we speculate peak potency sort of ends and it might lose potency afterwards. We're not sure yet though. Things like definitively, we're getting a little bit of research out now, but definitively answering whether or not the age old argument is the cap stronger than the stem, for example. We, we don't know that <laughs> definitively yet. So we've got a long way to come, but I'm very excited about exotics because I just know, you know, there's so much more there that is unknown. And, you know, the potencies are, you know, sometimes three and four times that of a regular cubensis. Sure. So it sounds like there's a lot of empiricism that's coming into play to buttress all of the different anecdotal experiences that people have had. And to, to move into that area of conversation a little bit more. Let's talk about the empirical evidence or the overall macro trend of microdosing because microdosing has taken the world by storm. And I've been a psychonaut for probably 17 years now, and I had never, ever heard the word microdosing until about two years ago. So yeah, I loved a mini dose. Like all the time I would pop 0.5, you know, of a cubensis and go to a function. But this idea of microdosing has become so popular so quickly, and I've sort of seen it to be a convenient entry point for a lot of people who aren't familiar with actives or who aren't familiar with the psychedelic counterculture to enter and to start to get to know it. I'd just love to touch upon what are your thoughts on this subject of microdosing? Is it something that you've heard about for a long time? Is it something that you think has a big future in the industry? I would love to, to just hear you know, what you think about microdosing. Microdosing is the biggest thing that we've seen for the industry and probably the biggest, best boost that we've had you know, forever. The amount of requests uh, and information I'm asked for about microdosing from what I want to call unconventional communities <laughs> has been staggering. And whether it's anecdotal or not, I, I take anecdotal from a lot of sources just as strong as empirical. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. I had a family contact me here locally and uh, their 10-year-old son has suffered some serious brain trauma. <laughs> and they asked for my help. Sorry about this. And they've started microdosing their son and they've seen the results that they haven't seen prior to with his 
speech pathology and his improvement of, you know, his cognitive sort of understanding and his functioning. So where we were with cannabis long before legalization and sort of um, Phoenix Tears and Rick Hansen Oil and how it was being used sort of underground for, and I, you know, I only gave my experience and my understanding to these people, to the, the parents and let them know, I don't, there's, there's no, there's nobody doing this. We don't have research for this to give you, but I'm willing to work with them to see if we could push forward. And it's been, for me, it's been, you know, probably one of the highlights of sort of opening my eyes. I mean, everybody knows, you know, you can have a great trip and you feel great and you have a good golden glow for the next week or so after. But when you're not looking for those psychotropic effects, but you are looking for the results of something and it works and you can see that and on someone you know, so fragile and frail and, you know, um, so they're actually using lion's mane in conjunction with very, very, very small microdoses with their son. And I think it's, it's fabulous. Aside from that, we're getting, I get requests from the geriatric community. People are looking for them for, you know, general mood enhancement. Um, Microdosing is, you know, you, you have to be careful with microdosing too, you know, unless you're dosing properly, it can easily fall into a mini, like you said. And as much as that might be great for, you know, the effects and, you know, a lot of people that can be scary and daunting and they're not aware of it and they weren't prepared for it. So we want to make sure that we're always dosing accordingly, properly. And that's based on a few things, you know, your size, your experience, you know, your pH level as best as we can. People are using microdosing for a whole bunch of things. People are using microdosing now for mostly, I see it for getting through things like PTSD, anxiety, depression. Usually I find the larger doses are going to be for people trying to get through, you know, bigger trauma, more of the addiction uh, and seeing great results as well. I guess the biggest surprise and for me, one of the most exciting new sort of research that I'm seeing come out is the use of micro and mini dosing for pain relief. That's a huge potential market um, when we're talking about people that are dealing with chronic pain and have to live with serious pain. And there's not a lot of options on the market right now to deal with pain effectively other than unless you're getting into some, you know, barbiturates and opiates and that really starts to affect your life and your system with long-term usage. So the potential for that alone is staggering and I'm, I'm very excited for that and I'm, I'm over the moon happy with microdosing because it has also taken sort of some of the wildlife stigma off of fungus and, you know, the cliche, ubiquitous, trippy, you know, psychedelic sort of moniker that it's held for so long. So this takes it to more of a personal 
more of, I want to say, you know, an accessible level for the non-conventional, the non, you know, uh, non-normal user. So people can integrate it into their life without altering their, you know, day-to-day functions. I remember when I first heard about microdosing, I guess about a decade ago, it was cool. I had some friends down in California and they were telling me like, all these programmers and all these coders down in the valley are using mushrooms in microdoses and they're coming up with new types of coding and more fluid algorithms and they were becoming like 30% more productive and just like the coding, it's uh, and it was completely, you know, being redeveloped and becoming more productive so that became a little bit of a buzz in that pocket which made its way up here to Vancouver and we started hearing about that and that was sort of my first introduction on on microdosing and sort of the microsurfs down there and how they were utilizing it and here we are today sure yeah you said the exact word that came to mind accessible it feels accessible i think of a lot of people in the communities that i grew up with and that i interact with who don't necessarily have a strong interest in having a very disorienting, potent, psychedelic experience. But this idea of incremental, gradual changes without rocking the boat too much is very appealing for a lot of people. And it can function as a bridge between the subculture of psychedelics and, you know, as you mentioned, the sort of stigma of like the wild commune hippie versus the everyday functioning member of society. So I see a lot of value in the fact that so many people are finding microdosing to be a meaningful point of entry for them into the psychedelic narrative and the discussion in the emerging industry. So I would love to hear about a little bit about the culture of working in academia, because I know you collaborate with a few different universities and institutions. And with industry, there seems to be a lot of secrecy, right? There's trade secrets and you don't want the other person to have access to your research or to your knowledge. And I've seen that firsthand when I've asked people for samples of certain tissue cultures or for you know certain information. But I've also worked and collaborated with academia and there's this culture of sharing there seems to be this like shared mutual goal of advancing research at least from what i've seen i would love to hear about your experiences working with academia and how maybe those goals and that culture differs from working with industry where it's a lot more hush hush and beat the other person to the bigger piece of the pie yeah you hit it on the head there i mean historically this industry or community has been so tight-lipped so guarded forever everybody protected their grow techniques and their little secrets like the bloody coke secret you know nobody shared anything it was you know always shrouded in secrecy and it's only been you know as of recently in the past decade where we've seen you know sort of chat forms pop up and you know the onset of the internet and groups and pages and youtube and there's now a lot more free flow of information and that was sort of what spurned the idea of you know me starting a school online and uh, beginning courses and it was a natural extension from what I was doing in all the groups that I had been. I mean, there's, you know, I have dozens of groups that are, you know, for advanced growers, for noobs, you know, for people that are cooking with them, you know, for mutants, for truffles. So as an admin, you know, 
my day, I'm, I'm giving my advice. I'm, you know, answering questions. I'm doing that already for free. I'm helping people. So we decided that we would start a school to do that with some other, you know, amazingly talented master cultivators and scientists. So my thoughts, you know, have been, let's, you know, blow the roof off of that Coke secret conundrum and let's just share the wealth because when you share the wealth then good things come back and we see the development of the industry and we have and we've seen the community sort of open up in the sharing and it can only it's it can only help but in the academia world where I'm now working with universities I'm completely blessed that I have the lab power of these universities where uh, typical private labs aren't running the type of gear and the equipment that university labs are. I mean, like I said before, your average lab that we're getting research done is running HPLC, UPLC, whereas universities are running mass spec, mass spectrometry, um, which, you know, is five times a 200,000 or dollar machine, even more. Not a lot of people can use that or afford that. So, um, now, through my working with Cube Biotech, I've had the doors open to some of these wonderful institutions and their labs. And we're like a bunch of kids and geeks in a candy store when we get together. <laughs> I'm teaching them everything that I possibly know, and they're in turn teaching me what they can. So we're doing some really cool things, and I've sort of, you know, come into it with the idea of we're all going to share our results. You know, I am not going to be the wall between, uh, especially if I'm going to be part of these research teams. I'm going to be the conduit to share the information between us so that we can get to the end goal quicker. I don't need us stepping on each other's toes or doing the same infer research over that, you know, somebody else's. So it's really great that way. It's great working with researchers that, you know, want to help each other and share. And we, you know, we try to solve problems and get to a common goal. I'll mention one of the things that I'm excited about that we're doing with the University of Montreal is we're going to start genome mapping some of my mutations, my mutants. And then when we have them mapped, we're going to look at starting starting to do some genetic manipulation with those and some real cool stuff is coming on the future with that. So yeah, I, uh, I'm definitely a sharer of information and I feel like we've just been in the dark ages for too long. So let's kick the doors open and let's, let's share the light. <laughs> I'm right there. I'm right there with you. And before we move on, I'd love to ask you what exactly a mutant means in case anybody listening might not be familiar with that concept. Right. What is a mutant? So, I mean, you can definitely go on to my Instagram page, or cheap plug here at Ape King Kong, and you can see some of the genetic mutations that I post there. Uh, but these are, you know, atypical mutations that we look for that are not your average mushroom with a stock or stipend and a cap or a stem and a cap. We're looking for anomalies. We're looking for uh, things like rose comb fin, different genetic mutations that I look for and I isolate and I sort of specialize on. So 
those are typically what I do look for to specialize in now because I just feel like there's there's more there in the future for me. We've all done the research and we've all worked with what we call the regulars, the regs. So uh, for me, it's a little bit more sort of novel to look for some of the things that aren't typically found in nature. So those mutations. Cool. Thank you for clarifying that. And I'm going to hit you with one or two more questions before we let you go today. And this one is sort of a broad strokes question. So feel free to go whatever direction you want to with it. But I'm curious about where the mushroom industry and specifically the psilocybin mushroom industry or the actives industry is headed in the next couple of years because so much is changing so quickly. So are we looking at an industry with potentially a small number of very powerful and entrenched companies running the game due to cost prohibitive and difficult to obtain licensing and permits and volume required to compete in the international market or in the market? Or could there be room for more independent cultivators and micropreneurs to go above board and be legit and still compete with these larger entities? So do you foresee an industry where independent mushroom brands are going to have to stay underground while the big industry dogs capture all the market share and divide it between a few key players, which I believe is one of the things that cannabis has done specifically in California that a lot of people are not so thrilled with and trying to avoid with mushrooms. Or do you see a future legal psilocybin market where there's a lot of independent operators and a lot of different craft cultivators who are able to compete? Sadly, I'm going to have to defer to, I think we're going to be left with a lot of big players for at least the first little while of legalization here in Canada. I would assume, you know, the states are going to be a little bit further behind unless, you know, something magical happens with Biden or the next government. But, um, and I think that that's probably, you know, almost exactly what happens in most cases when you're looking at something that is considered medicine or of a medical grade. We definitely want to make sure out of the gates that we're giving the companies that have the ability to do the diligence, to do the testing, to make the proper extractions at the commercial levels for a wider audience that can handle that. And it's not easy. And to have HCAP standards and to have all of your GMP standards and have everything up to grade that we're used to as a society for both food grade standard, medical grade standard. We know that a lot of small and mid-size operators can create that type of a product, but can they handle the type of expansion, you know, to get to a bigger level to service a broader market. So I think sadly, yeah, for the first little while, and not sadly, it's probably, you know, logically the way that it should, you know, um, we have some of the larger companies that, you know, will sort of come out, they'll cut their teeth, they'll make the mistakes, the government will have time to look at it, readjust, uh, maybe make some amendments to legislation, let smaller mid-sized players come in. I mean, you can see it in cannabis right now. I mean, they haven't budged on a lot of things with, you know, smaller independent, you know, producers. They're still not allowed to enter the market. I mean, has that stopped them? <laughs> they're still there. They're still producing. Uh, there's still a burgeoning gray market. You know, I don't foresee anything 
sort of changing too much a similar to what's happening uh in in the actives market i think you know we're going to have some bigger companies set the tone we'll have more money coming in we probably will have hopefully some bigger companies you know even more coming in which you know as we see more and more the the noose loosening you know and more regulatory control sort of loosening just logically, we're going to see a whole bunch more players come in that are willing to take the plunge and they might not have, you know, the full blessing of the government. And that's fine. Things will work their way out. You know, the legalities and the law will catch up and, you know, the good ones will, will stick around and the people that have proven it and they've got, you know, a good following and a great reputation, you know, hopefully you would think that they would eventually be able to apply or they could challenge the current, you know, ruling based on, you know, their track record and hopefully they might get exemption and legalization or opportunity to at least operate in a framework or a market where they're not constantly at fear of, you know, being shut down or, you know, everything being seized or, you know, the finances being uh, frozen. Cool. Well, thank you very much for unpacking that. And last question I have for you, I I would love to know what are some of the projects on the horizon for you that you can share with us and that we can look forward to over the next couple of months or couple of years coming out of your camp? Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about working with, with Cubed and we're going to be getting into some cool bioreactor work. We've got a fantastic team and uh, our, our chemist is going to be taking us in doing uh, enzymatic uh, extractions. Um, I'm going to be, you know, building sort of my own methods and improving that uh, it, with Cubed and trying to get, you know, sort of our production to the best possible that it can. I'm excited to work with some different entheogens, some um, hopefully some cactuses and barks and vines. We're excited about that. Our MO with, with Cubed is, you know, sort of natural extraction processes versus, you know, man-made synthetics for all our derivatives. So, uh, and just the general sort of climate for change, you know, there's a lot going on in Canada here. I'm doing some really cool consulting work with some great companies. I'd like to get back to teaching. I haven't been able to do teaching and that's sort of, you know, been hanging heavy on my heart. I, I'm going to get back into my, my genetics. I've been doing a lot of work here at, you know, at my lab, but I haven't, I've had to step back on a lot of work. You know, recently I've just been dealing with some some family health concerns. My mom hasn't been doing so so well with cancer, and I've been just sort of hoping that and praying that things get better. And she's getting through it. So once um, once she finishes up her her therapy and gets on the mend, I'm I'm looking to get back into full force and you know get back onto some real cool genetic stuff and hopefully bring some teaching back to people and um you know sharing my my knowledge out there that's sort of my my short to medium goal right now <laughs> right on chris aaron aka ape king kong thank you so much for joining us today it's been a real pleasure i've learned a lot you're welcome back anytime you want to come on the podcast Hey, man, it's been great having me. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Okie dokie, karaoke. Thank you all for joining us today. Tap in with Mycopreneur Podcast. Let us know what's up, what you thought about this episode. You can just pop the search query, Mycopreneur, into your Google box. 
please consider rating and reviewing this episode. Take care of yourself out there. It's been a pleasure hosting this for you. Mm-hmm.